Okay, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. I'll be reading Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Blessed is the reading of God's holy word. Father, I beg of you for the work of the Spirit and the gift of teaching, of explaining, of unfolding, and of applying the original intended meaning of this text. And don't leave us. Don't leave any in this room with ears that don't hear what your word says to us. So work to the glory of your holy name, to the glory of your Father, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. When it comes to evangelism, at least in the American evangelical idea of evangelism, seems as if Jesus totally missed the boat. From our idea of getting people saved, this was ripe fruit. Just pick it, Jesus. I mean, you didn't even have to try to turn the conversation to spiritual matters and get there with the gospel. The guy came running up to Jesus, asking him, how can I be saved? What do I do in order to inherit eternal life? This guy's got influence. He's filthy rich. He's a ruler, which means he's some type of a civic leader. He knows people. People know him. This would be a big catch for the kingdom of God. If this guy just tithed to Jesus' ministry, he could bankroll the whole thing. So Jesus, don't blow this one, man. Reel him in. Get him to make a decision. But Jesus let him walk away. Unconverted. It shouldn't have been that hard. I mean, this guy was not a really hard case. He wasn't a dope addict. He wasn't a guy with a criminal background. From early teenager 
dumb. This guy had been on a pursuit of living according to the moral commandments of God. He was, quote-unquote, a culturally good man, a model. Churches would love to hold him up, be like this. Shouldn't have been that difficult to lead this guy to Christ, especially when the Christ is the one doing the evangelism. And so Jesus seems to have taken the wrong approach to get this guy saved. I mean, we all know just a little bit of training, right? This is what you do. When people come up and they ask you, how can I be saved? I want to go to heaven. I want to inherit eternal life. Well, then the answer is easy. You just tell them you don't do anything. You can't do anything. It's absolutely free. Just believe and receive Jesus. And then you, you, you lead them into a prayer to ask Jesus to come into their heart. And you get them to do that. The fish is on the line. And now you tell them, that's it. It's over. You're in no matter what ever, ever, ever transpires in your life. Be assured you're saved. We, that's how you do it. But Jesus seems to have been searching for something deeper, more real than that. And so he makes a... Say it this way, not a very wise move according to our standard American evangelical ways of getting people saved. He says, I'll answer you. You want to know how to get eternal life? Keep God's commandments. Jesus is shining the light on this guy's idolatry on his sinful heart. And he's, the light he uses is the second half of the Ten Commandments here. But then this guy answers, okay, I do that. I've been doing that since I was 13 years old. And so then Jesus goes after him again. And he makes a jarring statement. Verse 22, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. This is evangelism. And Jesus brings up the subject of money. Doing everything wrong. I mean, we're afraid to bring that up even three years in when the person's coming to church. And he does it in evangelism. And he chases this guy away. But here's my contention this morning maybe Jesus didn't blow it. Maybe Jesus has something crucial for us to learn about the salvation of souls in the preaching of the gospel. And so that's my contention in the rest of this sermon, that Jesus has two main points to teach us. The first is this, that in the preaching of the gospel of Christ, we are to be looking for something for genuine, saving faith. That's the first lesson. The second lesson we will see is that genuine, saving faith, by the way, is impossible for people to have. Humanly speaking, left to themselves. That that conversion, that change of heart that He shows us that faith is here, is a miracle of God. That's where we're going. So let's look at the first thing he has to teach us first, and that is the nature of the faith that saves. 
The nature of the faith by which people enter into the kingdom of God will inherit eternal life. Let me just make sure that in this text you understand the issue is clear. It is about heaven and hell. It's not about rewards and degrees and all that kind of stuff. It is about eternal salvation or eternal condemnation. He comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the issue. And in verse 24, Jesus says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Eternal life, the kingdom of God. And then His disciples and others around Him respond, then who can be saved? In verse 26. It's about salvation. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about eternal life. Jesus sums it up in verse 30. <laughs> Anyone who comes to me in this life, there's things that will just fall away and they will give up. They will receive back many more times in this age and in the age to come. Eternal life. So this dialogue here, Jesus' teaching here, has to do with heaven and hell. And the ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, see, in that culture, nobody called rabbis, teachers like Jesus, good. It wasn't done. The Talmud, which records a lot that happened in the first century, does it later on, but we look back, the rabbis are never referred to as the good teacher, the good rabbi. Good meant something reserved for God in this Jewish culture. This guy's trying to flatter Jesus. Jesus hates flattery. He hates people trying to manipulate him. And that's why I think the main reason he comes back at this guy was, why do you call me good? There's none good but God alone. But not only that, to point to something that this guy needs to see since he's using this language. Okay, got that now? There's only one good, the goodness of God. God is good. Okay, how are you doing, sir? You ask me a question about, you want eternal life from the goodness of this God? How good are you doing with loving your neighbor? It's yourself as the good God commands. That's the flow of the text. See, good here is not relative when it's in the context of God is good. He's one perfect standard. But good is relative as we compare with one another as human beings down on this earth. I just want to just, just stay on that for a minute or two. Therefore, this guy is an example of Jesus. Here's an evangelistic opportunity of dealing with a good man in that sense. And this shows us that culturally moral, good people need to be saved. This guy believed in God. He was zealous for spiritual things. He was conscientious about trying to live a good moral life according to God's Ten Commandments. He was good. But he was lost. He was just like many people in our neighborhoods, in our little leagues, in our schools. Their teachers, they coach our kids in baseball. They're decent 
moral people. Relatively speaking. But they lack eternal life. They have no treasure in heaven and are not following Jesus. And so as the story makes clear, it is not enough to be religious, to be a churchgoer, to be nice, to be a community service, Boy Scout, leading, baseball, coach, PTA member person. Where it really counts, up against the essence of goodness, who is God Himself. There's only one who's good. And that's why God, the Holy Spirit, has the Apostle Paul quote from the Old Testament and reiterate the truth that in that sense about, there's only one good, as Jesus says, God alone in that sense when it comes to every one of us human beings outside of Jesus. There is none good. No, not one. So, in response to the man's question about how to inherit eternal life, Jesus says in verse 20, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. So Jesus here gives essentially the second half of the Decalogue, of the second half of the Ten Commandments that have to do with how you treat others down here horizontally. Surely this guy then will have some introspection from Jesus' question and realize he falls far short from the kingdom of God. Remember the context of chapter 18 of Luke. This is and Luke knows what he's doing, the way these things are unfolding here in chapter 18. Jesus has told the parable of the Pharisee. I'm just, thank you, God, I'm not as bad as these other people. I'm good. And the tax collector says, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, and Jesus goes on to say in this chapter, unless you become as little children... Before God, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Unless you put down your arrogance and your deceptions about your goodness and your righteousness, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus shines the light, and tragically, this rich young ruler totally missed the whole. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. He was sincere. He was a good religious man, but he was blind to the holiness of God. And he was blind to the depth of his own sinfulness before this holy God. This guy really did think he kept the law. But he was ignorant of God's law and its purpose and its true spiritual meaning that was always there on the pages. In other words, this guy was a whole lot like the Apostle Paul before Paul was converted to Christ. This is what Paul said about his pre-Jesus life in Philippians 3. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. I've done them all. What are you talking about? I'm, I'm the elite of the elite of my religious community, is what he argues in Philippians 3. But he goes on to say, but what happened is Christ came, shined a light, 
And whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. All that religious gain and pride I took in that, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ so that I can be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness, not mine, that comes from God, He gives it to me, that depends on faith. Okay. Before Paul, under the law, I've done all that, Jesus. I was blameless as a Pharisee. But when the Holy Spirit came and Paul got born again and opened his eyes, what happened was this, the truth about the law's purpose and the truth about his own sinful heart before the law and before God was revealed to him. Listen to how he says this in Romans 7 for a minute. Verse 7. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. That's the tenth commandment. And then he says, but sin, well, this is what happened with me in my early life, Paul said, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. He just says, when I got born again, when faith rose in me, the light was turned on and I saw that my entire inner life, other people couldn't see it, he says. That's why he goes to the 10th commandment of covetousness. My entire inner being was riddled with covetousness. The law, he says, God's commandments to me killed me or condemned me. They didn't save me. Okay, so, okay boom. End of parenthesis, okay? That's what Jesus is doing here. You know the commandments? See if this happens with him. Uh, and Jesus sees this guy isn't getting it. I kept all those, no problem. What next? And Jesus knows he's an idolater. He's guilty and he is condemned before God unless something changes in his heart. Unless something changes to cause this rich, good, young ruler to keep the first half the Ten Commandments have no gods before me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't make any other idols. And when that happens, or if that happens, then this guy will experience in him a keeping not a perfection, but he will experience a keeping of the second half of the Ten Commandments. And, and what will happen is, like what happened to the Apostle Paul, he will see that the way he viewed God and his laws to him was totally wrong. He will see that God's laws, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt love the Lord your God, thou shalt keep holy thy Sabbath day, thou shalt honor your father and mother. He will see that none of those laws were ender, ever, ever intended for us to take them and make them rungs in a ladder to build so that we can climb our way into he will see that God's commands are never a job description that an employer gives to an employee. 
and then based on his relationship with Christ. Lindsay, pay attention here. Let's go down a little bit or something, please. Then based on his relationship with Christ, it all be changed. He will then say, not in order to get eternal life, but because he has it. He will say, your wish is my command. And your commands, O Lord, are my joy. In other words, he'll fall down on his face like we saw in this very chapter of Luke and say, be merciful to me, a sinner, and mercy will come. And his attitude will be set right concerning God's commands, that they're for your good. You can't earn anything by them. They have always been reaching into the hearts of sinful people, beckoning faith or trust, which was always the intention of the law of Moses. And so Jesus, in this text, sees he doesn't get it, so he goes for the jugular. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have. Let me just pause for a moment. This commandment is clearly a particular commandment to this man, not a universal commandment. Why? Because I don't like it? No. Just from the context, you go to the next chapter with Zacchaeus, another rich guy. Zacchaeus says, I will give away 50% of all I have. And Jesus was thrilled with it. So this idea that it's 100%, sell all your property, is not a universal command to every human being in order to have eternal life. Okay, you got that? All right, so here he says, one thing you still lack, sir, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. See, this man claimed what? I've kept all those commandments. But Jesus is saying, in effect, you do not keep the first of these commandments. You are an idolater. You don't trust God. You don't love God. You love and worship money. And not only that, because of that, relatively speaking, oh yeah, you're good. But in reality, you don't keep the least of these second half of the Ten Commandments in loving your neighbor as yourself. Because you are unwilling to delight and worship God to the place where you can release your goods and help other people like I just told you. Here's the big lesson he teaches us. Do you want eternal life? That's the issue, isn't it? Do you want to enter the kingdom of God in the age to come? Verse 30. Do you want to be saved? Jesus is saying, here it is. Believe in me. Trust me. Do you think that I really am the good shepherd? The who will command you in order to lead you into what is really good for you? Okay. Then obey me. Do this. That's what he's getting at. There's a man who owns his apartment in downtown Manhattan, New York, on the 12th floor, and the entire building is engulfed in flames, and it's finally getting up to his floor. 
He's got so many valuable possessions, TVs, and computers, and old photographs. They're precious to him. He doesn't want to leave them and let them get burned. And Jesus on the sidewalk looks up to him as he is in the window and says, do you want to be saved? Yes, tell me what to do. Jump into the net I have prepared. Jump! And the guy says, I can't leave this stuff behind. And he burns. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. But the point is, that's what conversion is. That's what the miracle of being changed in order to embrace Christ looks like. It is to be ripped away from our idols. Ripped apart from our previous idolatry in order to see. Remember Jesus' parable? To see the treasure in the field that Christ is. Of what it would mean to have treasure in heaven. What it would mean to follow Christ. It is to see the treasure in the field and to go home and sell everything you got in order to buy the field. So, is he saying, earn, work for your salvation? No. He's saying, receive it. Believe. Embrace the free gift of mercy. And Jesus is on the way to the cross to purchase it. That's what he's saying. And he's saying that faith, if that's real, it does manifest itself. The guy in the window could say till he's blue in the face, I believe you, Jesus. That's how to be saved. But if he doesn't jump... That's the first thing Jesus teaches in this text about the nature of the faith that saves. The second thing that Jesus teaches us is that that saving faith there that we just saw is impossible. We are absolutely hopeless left to ourselves. Conversion, change that this guy needed is a miracle of God working. See, when Jesus says, do this, and you will be a person who has treasure in heaven, you will be following me, You'll have that eternal life you're asking about. When he said that to him, he meant it. And now, what he goes on to say is stunning. And if you really are listening carefully, it also makes a lot of sense. Let me just paraphrase and then we'll look at it. See, what Jesus goes on to say now, because everyone's watching, this is public. The guy walked away sad. And he says, oh, by the way, this conversion that I'm calling for, this change that I'm calling for, (laughs) is absolutely humanly impossible. 
Jesus just told the guy, let go of your possessions and give it away. Help others with it. Put your heart in heaven. Treasure. Treasure the future that I'm promising you. Follow me. He just said that, right? And the guy turned around sad and he walks away. And then we read in verses 24 and 25. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Everyone's listening to him. He just says, let's take a big camel. And let's take a sewing needle, a little eye there to put the thread through. And let's shove that big, huge camel through that little eye and that needle. If you could do that, then a rich person can get saved. He just said, what you just saw here, the reason the guy walked away, because it's impossible for him to get saved. That's what he said. Now, now, now if you, wait a minute. I've heard preachers say that the eye of the needle is a, is a, a gate in Jerusalem where you've got to unload the camel, and the camel's got to get down really low in order to even get through the gate. It's possible. Okay. There's no such gate. There never was such a gate. It's a fabrication. And, and even if it were, there were, it wouldn't work in this context because Jesus goes on to explain his analogy of the impossibility of salvation here. He interprets it. Okay. Jesus just gave the camel analogy. The people are listening and they're stunned. And so they say in verse 26, those who heard it said, who can be saved? What a perfect opportunity for Jesus to clarify what he just meant by the camel going through a teensy-weensy little teeny impossibility hole. What a perfect opportunity in response to that question now. Who can be saved? He can clarify by saying, oh, guys, no, don't, I'm sorry. Not, don't say who. No, 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 no. Only people who earn so much money a year and above can't be saved. He could have said that. Only people who have a net worth in all of their stuff so much above that that it's impossible for them to be saved. He could have said that now. He, he could have said, don't misunderstand. Don't just say who like no one can. But, but the poor, they can be saved. Or, those who follow me, they can be saved. Believers, they can be saved. And all of those I just mentioned are true on one level. But Jesus he goes to a different level, a more foundational, underneath those other levels, foundational level. And so he does not say any of those things. The poor can be saved. Believers can be saved. Those who follow me, they can be saved. He doesn't say that. But he says plainly what he just meant by the analogy of the camel going through the eye of a needle. Verse 26. Those who heard this analogy said, who can be saved? But Jesus said, what is impossible? There it is. It's clearly what he meant. You're hearing me right. It's impossible. What is impossible with men? Humans. 
is possible with God? That's the question there. To be good exegetes, good Bible readers here. We care about what Jesus said, right? And what, what does He mean? So we've got to ask, what, what is Jesus particularly referring to when He said what is impossible with men is possible with God. Okay. Now, I'm going to try to show this, but this is what, clearly what he means. Jesus says, do this, sell it all, give it all you and the guy walked away sad. That's what he's referring to. What I, what I just said to this guy, and he went away sad, the reason he went away, because he can't do it. It's impossible with men. See, follow the flow. The rich young ruler had just been unwilling to leave his wealth and to treasure God and to follow Jesus. And then Jesus just says, see how difficult, I'll tell you how difficult, it's impossible. It, it, is, it is easier to take a camel and shove it through the eye of a sewing needle than it is for this guy right here to be saved. And then in the text, his hearers, probably his disciples, broadened the issue by saying, then who can be saved? They didn't say, they didn't say thank goodness I'm poverty stricken compared to this guy. They didn't say that. He said, then who on God's earth could be saved according to you, Jesus? And the essence of Jesus' response to them is that the point that I am making about this rich guy right here is our illustration. It is true for everybody. Because the issue is really not money. The problem isn't just this wealth. The problem is the human heart. And so Jesus makes the broad statement, with men and women, teenagers, with humanity, this response appropriately to salvation, is impossible. In other words, he's saying conversion from the worship of idols. For example here, there's lots of examples, but for example, the guy right here, his money, and change and turn to worship God through Jesus, to follow me, to put treasure up in heaven, that is humanly impossible. Here it is. Just put it in a nutshell. Who then can be saved? Jesus? Answer? No one. Unless God intervenes to do what is humanly impossible. No wonder Jesus didn't buy our American evangelical way of evangelizing people. He knew that it would create all kinds of false conversions. And then people would be inoculated for the rest of their life, maybe, from the true gospel, thinking they're fine. No. What Jesus meant by it is impossible for men is what he meant other places. Like in John chapter 6, verse 65, where Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one, how many? Zero. No one can come to me. Unless it is granted him. 
by the Father. It's what he had the Apostle Paul write in Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, left to yourself, humanly, in the flesh, indeed, it is impossible. That's what he says. Indeed, the mind cannot submit to God. This guy was an illustration of it. You can't do it. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person, here he clearly means the unregenerate person. Without, all things are possible with God coming in and changing a human heart, causing him to be born again, you're a natural person. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he's not, and he's not, and he's not able, can't, doesn't have it within him. The want to is not there naturally. He is not able to understand them when you speak the gospel because they are only spiritually discerned. Well, what Paul said in Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God of the possible acted. God made us alive together with Christ, for by grace have you been saved. In other words, it is impossible for dead people to be converted to Christ unless God first does the humanly impossible to them. Now, let me just say it this way. Throughout church history, there have always been brothers and sisters, fellow genuine Christians in the history of the church who say at this point, yes, it's true, conversion is humanly impossible apart from God's grace, but God makes it possible for every human being by His universal grace. And thus, He makes it possible for everybody that you preach the gospel to because God's grace is there to do something that is enough to now make it possible for them to embrace Christ, to choose Jesus if they will. And some do. And some don't. In other words, it's been taught, it's believed by a majority of Christians today that it would be impossible without the grace of God, true enough, that's clear in Scripture, but this grace that God gives universally does make it possible for everyone to now choose Christ. For them, because the grace of God has already come, now to do the final lever pulling of salvation and get saved. But that interpretation of this text, it just Follow it again. The rich young ruler loves his idols. He loves his wealth and what he thinks it gives him and buys him. He loves it so much that he walks away sad. He chooses to hang on to all of his stuff instead of to distribute it out to the poor, to have treasure in heaven, and to follow Jesus. And when Jesus goes on to explain this tragic choice this guy just made, he did not say, let me teach you what happened. God's universal grace came upon this guy, and it made it possible for him to obey what I just said. But, bummer, he chose his stuff instead of eternal life in me. But it was possible because of God's 
grace that's given to everybody. That's not how Jesus explained it. His explanation is, it's impossible for him to leave his riches and to treasure me. That's his explanation. With men, example A here, this guy, with men, it is impossible. And therefore, what Jesus means when he says in verse 27, what is impossible with men is possible with God. He means this, that God can and God does effectually enable people to leave their riches, their idols, their spiritual death, and follow Christ. Those who heard it said, then who could be saved? But Jesus said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Because God is the one who grants that heart of faith. God is the one who gives, who grants repentance. This is how Paul said it in 2 Timothy 2.25. That God may, may not, but God may, perhaps, grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. It's strange. Wow. Everyone who is in this room and has turned from your idols, you have come alive out of spiritual death into spiritual life to see the light and you have embraced Christ. If that's you, it is only because of God granting it to you. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Paul in Ephesians 2, but God, he's already said we're all born into spiritual death, into sin. We are dead and children of wrath. And he goes on to say, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, that grace and that faith, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. When Paul went out to evangelize, in his missionary journeys, he took these central truths with him that gave him great encouragement and confidence. This is, how, this is how Paul talked about it in his mission. For we, excuse me, for Jews, he goes to the Jew first and then to the rest. Jews and then to the Gentiles. For Jews demand signs. And Greeks search for wisdom. We don't satisfy them. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews, and it is foolishness to Greeks, Gentiles. But remember what Jesus said, what's impossible with men is possible with God. That's what Paul says. He just says it this way. But as we preach, those who are called by God. That's what he means. 
They hear, they believe, they repent, and they get saved. But to those who are called, from among both Jews and Greeks, to them Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he's saying, look, the gospel comes. The church is to preach it and to obey it in all our various ways, in missions, in evangelism, in over coffee and tea. The gospel comes, but we are dead in our sin. Remember how Jesus said it in John? They don't come to the truth because they love the darkness rather than the light, so they can't come to the light. That's right. That was me. We're all dead, loving the darkness of our sin or money or toys or sexual freedom. And it is impossible to be saved, to be converted, except for God. And with Him, not only is it possible, but when He chooses, when He acts, it is absolutely guaranteed and assured that that human heart will be changed, will embrace Christ, and will be eternally saved, will one day enter into the kingdom that is to come everlastingly. Because why? Because what is possible with God is this. He changes a dead, hard, crusty, God-belittling heart. And when it's changed, as the prophets talked about, about the new covenant, a heart of stone turned to a heart of flesh, its desire changed. And it sees what Jesus just offered that guy. Eternal, unending, everlasting life is the greatest treasure in the world. That's how it works. That's why Luke lets us know, because he was there. Paul's preaching down by the river. And then he says... And God opened Lydia's heart to take heed to the things Paul said. And her life was changed. In other words, when the God of the possible acts, the heart says, what a deal. <laughs> of course, Jesus, I'll follow you. Who else has the words of eternal life? I've never heard such great gospel news. And that's what the rest of the text goes on to unfold real quickly. Verse 28. Peter said, in hearing all this, look, Jesus, we left our homes and followed you. And he said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Why doesn't everyone respond? Because of sin. See, this guy walked away because he could not see what a great deal that was that Jesus was offering. That's it. I mean, he said, let's just look, this is what Jesus says. Here you go, sir. Go on for your short-term pleasures for the next 28 years. And then enter unending justice against yourself. Got another choice? Yeah, here's the other choice. Lose your short-term pleasures of sin and idolatry. And in the end, inherit unending eternal joy in God. There's your choice, sir. And he walks away sad. And so will you. And some of you might be doing it right now. And he pleads, hear. 
So in this text, we have felt, I hope not just thought, but we have felt, along with these disciples, then Jesus, who can be saved? And we have heard his answer. No one, unless God converts the soul. Okay, now as I'm closing, here's my application. For us who are believers here at Sovereign Grace Fellowship, we could do one of two things. We could, firstly, take the Bible now at this point and just close it up and throw it over there and draw all kinds of unwarranted and unbiblical conclusions about what we see in this text and many other texts. Draw this unbiblical thing in our mind. If that's true, if conversion is impossible with men, then I'm not going to pray. Then I'm not going to evangelize the lost because my unbiblical mind tells me what's the point. Or we can take the whole Bible, keep it open, take the whole counsel of God, and not do away with this text, take it all together, embrace this text, and be really encouraged to pray to the God of the impossible. Got any of those people in your life who are on their way to hell and they're harder than anyone you know? With God, all things are possible. How is that, if you're a believer, how is that not an encouragement to plead with your God? Change their hearts. Open their eyes. Let them see. We should be encouraged all the more to pray. When we get this, we will speak the gospel of Christ with great assurance that it is that very gospel, the biblical one, that is the means through which God will save people. It is the clarity of the gospel through which God will cause the humanly impossible to happen to him, her, them, and the other. Who can be saved? With God all things are possible, so we do not need evangelistic tricks to get quick decisions. We don't need seeker-sensitive messages so they feel warm and fuzzy and really good as we hide the truth of who Jesus is and what their plight is. We just need clear gospel clarity. And we need prayer. Because this very God of the possible commands His people, ask of me. If you have a Bible to look, I'll just remind you. This whole chapter is about don't stop asking me. You remember verse 1 of chapter 18 of Luke? And Jesus told this parable in order that we would learn that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. We're praying to not a God who, I'm not going to touch that human heart and change their heart without their asking me. We're praying to the God who can and does. And we know that that same God who is sovereign over the salvation of people is sovereign over His ordaining that we pray as a means to Him doing it. So, as I close, this very God who answers prayer, I want to encourage us in a few specifics. Pray. Continue to pray for the missionary we support here, Madalena Gomez in her mission in Africa. Pray for little Michael 
our Bolivian child. Not that he just is well-fed and taught math and language and Bible, but that he be saved. Pray. You ought always to pray and to not lose heart in praying for our dear Karina Dengar. Pray for your lost loved ones, friends. Continue to pray for God to bring in genuine conversions to sovereign grace fellowship. Pray for God to bring persons or families who, because of God now, are hungry for expository preaching and for church life. All of these things are impossible with men, but they are all possible with our So, Father, only as a beginning, as we continue throughout the week, as a start, those particular prayer requests that I have just announced, to them we all now lift them up to you and say, God, the God of the impossible with us, nothing's impossible with you. Glorify your name in the salvation of these souls, in the sanctification of us, your people, in ongoing faith and repentance, in the fruit of your Holy Spirit manifesting itself in sovereign grace as we learn to forgive and to love one another because it's impossible with us, but all things are possible. And we ask it with the great confidence, knowing that it is your good pleasure to glorify your Son in such requests. Amen.